Our lesson today is about King Hezekiah. Sometimes he's been referred to by quite a few writers as Good King Hezekiah. And I'd like to add to that that King Hezekiah was a servant of God, a great servant of God, and he was a servant of, a, of our jealous God. And we're going to kind of look at that theme of God's jealousy here a little bit today as we look at the life of King Hezekiah. Now, our study today is going to be comprised of a study primarily of the events of King Hezekiah's reign, the first half of his reign. Uh, most of people have heard of King Hezekiah, and they probably have a sense that he was a, a good fellow, but they're not really sure why and what all was going on and why it all occurred. But I'd like to fill in some of the background information about this unique and blessed man, really a, a very admirable person in Scripture, and look at some of the events of his life and his reign and try to glean some things from that for our use and for our value. So as we examine the life of, of Hezekiah and we consider the circumstances, I think there are things that we can find useful for our own lives. But to really grasp what might be of value for us, we've got to get the larger context of his life and times. Most of what we're going to be reading from is going to be taken from the book of 2 Kings. So I invite you now, really, I really strongly encourage you to open up your Bible to the book of 2 Kings. That'll be the, past, the portion of Scripture that we spend the most time reading. There is an excellent parallel passage, though, found in 2 Chronicles. So the life of Hezekiah is taken from Kings and 2 Chronicles. The book of 2 Kings tends to lean more toward the political developments. The account in 2 Chronicles tends to describe in more detail the priestly developments in his reign. And then finally, there are some passages in the book of Isaiah that describe some of the events of King Hezekiah's reign. The prophet Isaiah and Hezekiah, their lives overlapped. And that's an important feature. So we will look at a couple of passages from the book of Isaiah. So let's get started with our story. Hezekiah, of course, was born into a very sober world. It was a difficult world that he was born into. He didn't, would not have probably have chosen to be born as a prince of the house of David into the world that was given to him. He was a prince of Judah, the little nation of Judah. But Judah was weak. Hezekiah lived in the early 700s. Well, yeah. He lived in the 700s. He was born. He died in B.C., 700s B.C. He passed away in the 600s B.C. And at that time, Judah was a small and weak kingdom. The sister kingdom to little Judah was the nation, the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel was considerably stronger historically, more populated, more natural resources, wealthier, Politically unstable, but a wealthier and larger kingdom. But Israel was failing. Israel was seriously floundering. And overshadowing all of this, of course, was Assyria. Assyria, as an ancient empire, was well known. Most of you have heard of the ancient Assyrian Empire. And at the time of Hezekiah, it was mighty indeed. Powerful. Now, Hezekiah's youth 
under his father, King Ahaz, was absolutely appalling. It was terrible. There are, I don't know what word I could use, what adjectives to select to say that Hezekiah was brought up in a house as a young child, as a young man, as a teenager, as a youth, into circumstances that were just absolutely awful. Now Ahaz, his father, had an extreme fear of Assyria. The Assyrians were an absolutely terrifying and mighty enemy. And Ahaz, like many of his contemporary kings, small kingdoms, were terrified of the Assyrians. Ahaz, in order to keep the Assyrian Empire appeased, Ahaz forced the priests of Judah to sacrifice to the Assyrian gods in the temple in Jerusalem. Now we can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 16, but after a visit to pay homage to the great Assyrian emperor, Ahaz returned home and told the priests in the temple in Jerusalem to strip off all the gold and silver decorations of the temple, ship it all to Assyria as tribute. He then told them to tear down and take down the great big um, brazen sea, this big, giant, huge uh, washing uh, receptacle, and move that. And instead, they erected an altar to the Assyrian gods right there in the temple of Jehovah. And during the remainder of Ahaz's reign, sacrifices in the temple of Jehovah in Jerusalem were made to the Assyrian gods. And the sacrifices to our Father in heaven were stopped. This is the decision of Ahaz. Ahaz went further, though. So great was his terror, and so little was his faith, that Ahaz sacrificed his own son in the valley of Hinnom. Now, the valley of Hinnom is a, is a narrow little gorge adjacent to the city of Jerusalem, where there is a, a giant statue erected to Moloch, and in which children were sometimes episodically thrown into the arms of Molech, which was a vast, gigantic, cavernous, hollow, bronze statue, and inside was a great fire, and the child would be burned to death. It would literally roll off the arms and into the mouth of Molech. At least that's how historians believe the the structure was designed, into this fire. Ahaz did that with his own son. Ahaz, all in all, was one of the most wicked kings of Judah. Hezekiah had an absolutely awful father. We ought to read a little bit. Now, there's more passages than we have time to read, but let's read just briefly a verse or two about King Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. I'll break into 2 Kings 16, verses 2 and 3. Do you have your Bible open? Please keep your Bibles open now. 
2 Kings 2 and 3, it says, 20 years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like David his father. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, yea, and made his son to pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places on every hill and every green tree. And we can read about some of the other features of what Ahaz did that was grossly and horribly wicked. Hezekiah grew up with the fear that his father might sacrifice him to Molech. His own brother had been slain in that way. Now, Hezekiah did survive all of that. And fortunately, Ahaz came to a rather untimely and early end. And Hezekiah then became king at about the age of 25. And he started out rather well. And we can read about that. But Hezekiah was very different from his father. The scripture does not give us all the clues that we would like as to explain why. But nonetheless, it's clear enough that Hezekiah was cut from a different bolt of cloth than his father. And he began to institute a series of reforms right away. First of all, he restored temple worship to Jehovah. So he cast out the gods of Assyria out of the temple complex. Now that in itself was a political statement. Because the Assyrians had been deriving tribute from the king of Judah. And in casting the Assyrian god out of the temple in Jerusalem, Hezekiah was signaling to Assyria that I am no longer your vassal and your God will not be recognized in my capital city. So it was a political statement to do so and it took considerable courage. Second, he invited all Israel to keep a renewed Passover. Now this is described at some length in the book of 2nd Chronicles chapters 29 and 30 and 31. But he, he, the, the, the festivals had totally been stopped. They had not been celebrated for decades. And he started it up again. And not only did he begin the Passover, but he invited people from the northern kingdom of Israel to come and join them. Now, not many did, but some did. Some did come from some of the northern tribes and join in this great festival renewal. Now, the festival, since it hadn't been held in a long time, and since the temple complex had been polluted by the false gods of Assyria, and since the priests had not been functioning as legitimate priests to our Father in heaven for many decades, and the Levites hadn't been performing these, these things, everything had to be brought forward from ground zero all again. And so they couldn't get everything ready on time, and so they had to hold the Passover festival in the second month instead of the first month. They needed the extra month to get things cleaned up and made ready. But the festival was so successful that when it was over, they decided to add another seven days to it. Because everybody was so pleased with how well it had gone, and nobody wanted to go home. So somebody said, well, let's, why don't we just keep on going? And so they did. So they had a seven more days added to it. 
Now, Hezekiah also removed false gods from various high places around the country. Now, remember, Judah is a kind of a small country. It would be the equivalent of only a couple of counties in Missouri. That's all the bigger the kingdom of Jerusalem was. Maybe about 50 or 60, 70 miles wide and maybe 80 miles long. You know, just not a very big country, little Judah was in those days. But at the various hills and places where there had been false gods set up, Hezekiah uh, was busy doing his best to take those all down. <clears throat> he did manage to make a couple of uh, uh, territorial captures. He captured back some land that the Philistines had seized. He captured back of a few other lost territories. These were not vast conquests, but he did recapture some territory that he had lost. So things were really going well for King Hezekiah when he started out. <clears throat> Now, we need to read a little bit about this. It says, Hezekiah, on the outline there, I want you sort of to summarize Hezekiah. It says, I've written down that Hezekiah trusted Jehovah above all Judean kings. So I'd like you to read with me a little bit about this. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. So I'm kind of summarizing a lot of information rapidly. But this is kind of a nice summary of the reign of King Hezekiah at the beginning. And all of this took considerable courage on his part. So let's read now 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse number 3. Are you ready to follow along? I'm in 2 Kings 18 verse 3. Let's read sort of a summary now of these positive aspects of Hezekiah's reign as a young king. <clears throat> I'm going to break into um, verse number, I guess I'll just, well, I'll start at verse number 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. <clears throat> and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, did. He removed the high places, break the images, cut down the groves, Break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For into those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan. Just a piece of copper, a piece of brass is what that word in Hebrew means. <clears throat> Verse 5. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor any that were before him. Now that's a remarkable statement. Let that thought settle into your mind for a moment. King Hezekiah was a remarkable young man. He trusted Jehovah above all the other kings of Judah. As we'll keep reading, you'll kind of discover that David is accepted, but, but except for David, Hezekiah ranks right up there at the tip top. Now notice verse 6. It describes a little bit, give maybe a glimpse of his heart. And I want you to think on this. Are you ready for verse 6? It says, he clave to the Lord. Clave, that is cleave. That means to uh, stick to. And if you look up the word clave in Hebrew, it means to desire, to pursue, to long for, to chase after. I want you to think on that. This is the heart of Hezekiah. This is really, that little phrase is a, is a little glimpse into the heart of Hezekiah. 
It says he claved to the Lord. He cleaved to the Lord. He longed for God. He pursued God. He had a heart for God. God was a... a he, he, was, he wanted to know God. Now that should stimulate a thought in your head, in your mind. Do you want to know God? Do you have a heart like Hezekiah? Do you pursue God? Do you seek God? Do you cleave after God? Do you want to stick to Him? That's right. Verse 6, continuing. For he claved to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth. And then it says in verse 7, And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. <laughs> now, here's the catch. In those days, as many of you probably already know, there wasn't this division between religion and politics that our times seem to take for granted. In those days, they were all bonded together. It was just one and the same. And in order to, if you were going to be a vassal to, king Assyria, to the king of Assyria and be willing to be a vassal for the sake of peace, for the sake of safety, which is what King Ahaz did, you would be compelled to adopt the king of Assyria's religious precepts. If you rejected his, the king of Assyria's religious precepts, you had, you, you automatically were declaring political rebellion. They go together. So just kind of let that percolate in your mind as we think on the reign of King Hezekiah. All right. Now, to accomplish all of these things that Hezekiah did as a young king, to celebrate the Passover, to renew the temple uh, sacrifices and the worship of Jehovah, to cleanse the temple, to, to get everything all back in order. He had no alternative but to break with Assyria. And he had to stop the flow of all the wealth out of the little kingdom of Judah. To do all of this, Hezekiah had to withhold tribute. He had to withhold the tribute to Assyria. And he had to do it because by withholding the tribute, it enabled him to be faithful to Jehovah. That is to say, it was not going to be possible, it would not be possible for Hezekiah to say, well, I'll be faithful to Jehovah but just to keep the Assyrians off my back, I'll keep sending them tribute. That was not a possibility. Amen. It was impossible. It was, it, was, it was financially impossible. It was politically impossible. It was morally and ethically impossible. It was spiritually impossible. Not just from the king of Assyria's point of view, but from God's point of view. Amen. From God's point of view, you see, God is a... Here, I want you to have another little thought in your head. We need to recognize that our God is a jealous God. Amen. He is God alone. Right. He is the only God, the one God, the only God, a jealous God. We can only recognize Him. There is no room to recognize any other gods. Not just the gods of wood and stone, obviously, but any of the other gods of our own contrivance, of our own time. 
that capture our own hearts. Now, to really emphasize this, we could go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 3 through 5, which tell us in one of the commandments that God is a jealous God. To really emphasize that, though, this, this thought that God really expects us to worship Him alone, read a verse in Exodus 34. Let me read it for you. <clears throat> Exodus 34, verse 14, reads like this. It says, Thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now that's how exclusive the worship of Jehovah is. It is so exclusive. It is so exclusive that God says, not only am, am I a jealous God, you might as well just call me jealous. Amen. Let my name be jealous. That's one, of my, that's one of my names, my titles. It's okay to look at me in that way, that I am a jealous God. Now we tend in our time to kind of view jealousy as a, as a completely negative emotion. I don't know if that's exactly right, though. It's not proper, really, to view jealousy as a, as, as, as a negative emotion all of the time. If there is a right and proper claim, that emotion that arises we call jealousy is, is, is appropriate. It's an appropriate feeling. If a wife is jealous of her husband, she has a claim to him exclusively. Amen. And that exclusive claim she has, because he took vows to her, he said, look, I'm going to be your husband, and to you alone I will cling. She has the right for that emotion to rise up when he fails to give her all of the attention she ought to have and seems to give a little attention elsewhere that seems to be inappropriate. Yes. And that emotion rises up in her. Yes. It's legitimate. Yep. It's justified. It's like, we say, righteous indignation or righteous anger. This is maybe a little righteous jealousy. Now, our God is a jealous God. He is jealous for our full attention and affections. And that's something we need to think on. <clears throat> All right, let's continue in our story. <clears throat> so back to King Hezekiah. The first great crisis of his reign created quite a little shock in this little nation. Remembering, Judah is a relatively small and weak nation as the nations go in the ancient world. Now, what was the great shock? We're going to find it in 2 Kings chapter 18. And the Bible, remember, the Bible tells these stories in kind of a brief, flat, unemotional way. But there's a lot packed into these, these words that we're reading. And to get the real impact of the story, you kind of have to have some background information and try to get a sense of the situation. But what had happened was, <clears throat> the sister kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, ceased to exist it ceased to exist as a political unit, and most of the people were gone. Let me read for you in 2 Kings 18. All right? Let's go back to 2 Kings. In verse 9 of 2 Kings, let's read. It said, It came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah 
which was the seventh year of King Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. Now remember, Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom. This is the sister kingdom to little Judah. This is the other Israelite kingdom. Now these two kingdoms, although they didn't get along politically all the time, they were sisters one to another. Very much like, well, I don't know, Australia, New Zealand. Or maybe, I don't know, uh, United States and England. Or some, some there was a, there's a unique cultural, linguistic, ethnic, genetic bond that held them together. That they felt affection for each other, even if they couldn't always agree on politics and couldn't remain politically united. There was a tremendous amount of cross-pollination all the time because of all the common factors of the past. And then it says in verse 10, back to the text, in 2 Kings 18, 10. And at the end of three years, they took it. Even in the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Now that's a three-year siege on the city of Samaria. And that's a great story of its own, if you like that sort of grim history. But if you can imagine what life in the city must have been like after three years cut off. And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel into Assyria and put them in Hala, Habor, by the river of Gozan, the city of the Medes. And we know that story. Because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed His covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and would not hear them nor do them. Now, this collapse, we'll stop there in the text. This collapse of the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel and its dissolution, its complete, complete and utter elimination, because it ceased to exist. This was an utter calamity for Judah as well. Little Judah is now alone in the world. This little kingdom of, that Hezekiah is the king of is utterly alone. There are no friends left in this world. And Hezekiah now, and little Judah, has to make all the frantic responses they can to try to get ready because they're next. It's clear enough. It's written plain as can be on the wall in front of them. We are next. It's not when, or rather, it's not if, it is when. It's not a matter of will the Assyrians come, it's only a matter of when will they get around to us. So, they begin to make their frantic efforts to get ready. First of all, the first was there was a surprising response they had to deal with. They were overrun with refugees. Out of the northern kingdom of Israel came several hundred thousand now, this is an estimation, of course, based on very limited information that history pro provides. But it is estimated that there are, were, were two or three hundred thousand refugees that fled in absolute terror from the Assyrians out of the northern kingdom into little Judah, hoping to escape the Assyrian war machine. And where did they arrive? Well, they just flooded into this little country of Judah, flooded into the land around Jerusalem, 
And here, the little kingdom of Judah has got to do something with these people. All these people, they're kinfolk from the north. Well, this is when Hezekiah built an extra wall. It turns out there were so many people encamped in tents around the city of Jerusalem that Hezekiah built an extension of the city along the north and extended the city to accommodate these literally tens of thousands of extra people who had nowhere to go and were just camped outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Secondly, he began to rebuild the, new, the old walls that already existed. Now, this was an important feature. After all, Samaria had been taken at the end of three years, so this was very frightening. If, if, if the Assyrians had the determination to spend three years on capturing the northern capital, uh, that means this is a pretty serious enemy. Now, for those, so the older walls were fortified, an enormous effort. And uh, for those of you who like these little tidbits of history that are kind of interesting, a tunnel was dug. Now, I don't have time to read and go into a lot of detail about the tunnel, but there is a, it turns out the city of Jerusalem, now here I'll digress into a little detail that's not terribly important, but for some of you people, you might like this. The city of Jerusalem had one excellent water source, but it was outside the city walls. It was about, a, if I understand right, it was about 50 yards or maybe 100 yards outside the city wall of Jerusalem. Now, they had attempted to extend the city wall around it, but it was a bad way to defend that water source because it was down at the bottom of a hill. And it was just, a, just a, the problem was if the Assyrian army comes, they're going to surround the city and they're going to get the water source and the people inside the city walls are going to be, have no water except rain. So this wonderful, beautiful, gushing, abundant spring that's like a small river gushing out of the ground is going to be right there for the Assyrians to use and the Israelites inside the city of Jerusalem won't have it. So Hezekiah got some engineers together and they began to dig a tunnel. And they dug a tunnel from one side of the city of Jerusalem from that spring underneath a small mountain to the inside the city and created a pool and then they stopped it up on the outside and they had to do this really fast and so they dug from both sides they had these guys digging remember this guys this is back in those olden days right and so these little guys are tunneling trying to find each other and you said well why didn't they dig just one way because they had to hurry so they said we got to dig from both directions and get there faster and so they dug and dug and dug and lo and behold it all worked out great They've worked out great. And uh, it turns out that there's a famous inscription that is one of the oldest inscriptions in ancient Hebrew that they commemorated this little tunnel. This tunnel just big enough for a man to go through that the water flowed through. So I'm going to read it for you. One more little... Oh, this, I find this interesting. Maybe, I don't know if you do. It says, <clears throat> This is the narrative of the tunneling. While the stonecutters were wielding the picks, each toward his co-worker... And while there were still three cubits to tunnel through, the voice of a man was heard calling out to his co-worker, because there was a fissure in the rock running from south to north. And on the final day of tunneling, each of the stonecutters was striking the stone forcefully so as to meet his co-worker, pick after pick. And then the water began to flow from the source to the pool, a distance of 1,200 cubits. And 100 cubits was the height of the rock above the head of the stonecutters. 
So this famous tunnel, known as Hezekiah's Tunnel, was about a third of a mile long and about 150 feet deep underneath the ground. And uh, it got them ready for this great and terrible siege that they feared. All right, well, anyway, back to more important things. All right, let's continue. Well, what happens next? Well, it turns out, they, it turns out that, that, that they had a little time. The, after several years, of course, the dreaded blow did fall upon Judah and Hezekiah. The Assyrians did come. So it turns out in Hezekiah's 14th year, the Assyrian army arrives in force. Now, one of the reasons that the Assyrians had a little bit of a delay is because their previous king passed away, and the new king had to take a little time to consolidate his political power back in the home country. And so the old king, Shalmaneser, had passed away, and the new king of Assyria, Sennacherib, was coming, and they arrived. This great Assyrian army quickly captured all the cities of Judea except Jerusalem. Forty-six smaller cities in Judea were captured, and Jerusalem alone survived, and Jerusalem alone was now besieged. And Jerusalem alone, as you can imagine, was jammed with refugees from the floors to the rafters in every city, in, excuse me, in every building in town. No one knows how many people were jammed inside the city of Jerusalem, but there had to have been four, five, six times the normal population. And now we come to an interesting feature of the story. We're introduced to a fellow by the name of Rabshakeh, or maybe that's his title. It's not clear if that's his name or his title. But turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 18. Now we're going to break into the story starting in verse number 28. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse number 28. The Assyrian ambassador arrives. And the Assyrians aren't stupid. They know that it'd be great to capture this city without having to besiege it for two or three years. So they attempt some hard diplomacy. I mean, really hard diplomacy. And the ambassador comes up to the city walls of Jerusalem and he makes a grand speech, a grand public speech to everybody that was standing along the top of the wall who could hear, all the soldiers and any civilians who might be curious. They're all listening to the ambassador of the Assyrian king. Let's see what this guy has to say because it's quite significant and has great implications. So let's break into our story in 2 Kings 18, verse 28. <clears throat> then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language. Now remember, so he decides I'm going to speak Hebrew to these people. Why did he speak Hebrew? Hebrew is a, well, not very many people in the ancient world spoke Hebrew. This was not like it was an international language. He spoke Hebrew because he wanted the people inside the city to know what he was saying. He wanted the civilians to hear it. He wanted the people at the top of the walls to know what he was saying so they would 
immediately when the speech was over, would go back to their houses and say, did you hear what that ambassador said? So he says, and spoke in a loud voice, saying, and back in verse 28, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me, buy a present, and come out to me. And then eat ye every man of his own vine, and every man of his own fig tree, drink every one waters of his cistern, until I come and take you away to a land likened to your own, a land of corn and wine, a land of oil, olive, and honey, that ye may live and not die. Hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuadeth you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Verse 33. Rabshakeh continues. This ambassador continues. And he says, Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and of Arpad? Those are nearby cities that had already fallen to Assyria. Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of mine hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So you get the message that this ambassador is giving. He's speaking to the people standing on the top of the walls. And he's saying, hey, don't listen to your king who says Jehovah's going to deliver you. I mean, all these other cities thought their gods would deliver them. Did it work for them? Did their gods deliver them or did they fall to us? Your God can't deliver you any more than those other gods delivered them. Verse 36. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, Answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, and told him the words of Rebshakeh. So the ambassador of the Assyrian king delivers a public ultimatum. One that insults not just King Hezekiah, but insults the living God. What was Hezekiah's response? Well, let's keep reading a little bit. In verse number one, we're just, we'll see that Hezekiah is gravely shaken. And he calls for Isaiah the prophet came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it that he rent his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. He didn't know what to say or do or think. Well, he kind of knew what to say or do or think, but believe me, he was, he was frightened. 
any rational person would be a bit frightened and intimidated. But Hezekiah responded well. If we drop down to verse 5, we discover that he called for Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah gave him some advice. Now, I won't read all of the words of Isaiah, that Isaiah the advice Isaiah gave him. We don't really have time to, to go through all of the text. But Isaiah's advice had three components to it. The first one is not particularly surprising. It tells us that in 2 Kings verse 19, excuse me, verse 6 of chapter 19. The first thing Isaiah says, he says to Hezekiah, Be not afraid. Isaiah said, bolsters him and says, I know you're the king. I know you're the king of the only kingdom of Israel that's left. And I know your city's surrounded. And I know this empire has never been beaten. And I know they outnumber you umpteen to one. And I know the situation looks grave. And I know there's a lot of problems. But don't be afraid. <laughs> so Isaiah encourages him, don't be afraid. And then he begins to explain why Hezekiah shouldn't be afraid. And he begins to explain that the Assyrians have now made a grave error. <laughs> and this grave error is very simple. They have blasphemed God directly. They have not only insulted King Hezekiah, they have not only insulted the Judeans, but they have insulted the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of heaven, they have insulted the one true God. Not only did they say, Hezekiah, you're a loser. Your army fights like a bunch of little girls. You guys are poor as church mice and don't stand a chance. But your God can't save you. That was their mistake. Isaiah said, they have no idea what they brought down on their heads. Amen. That is the game changer. We could read about this in verse 20 of chapter 19. It says, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, That which thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib king of Assyria I have heard. This is the word the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. Now pay attention to verse 22. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? That's talking to the Assyrian king. Who have the Assyrians reproached? Who have they blasphemed? And against whom... Have thou, that is, you, O king of Assyria, who have you exalted your voice and lifted up thine holy eyes on high? And the answer is, even against the Holy One of Israel. So we discover, if we keep on reading now, that for Hezekiah, and now something really good is going to be happening here. For David's sake, for Jehovah's sake, and for Hezekiah's sake, God is going to destroy the Assyrians. And we can read about it, what Isaiah says here. If we break into verse number 30, I'll start reading. Here's what Isaiah says now is going to happen. Here is his prophecy. 
He says, the remnant that's escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. In other words, you're going to be saved. It's not over. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth the remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shall he shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor cast a bank against it. In other words, Assyria is not going to even get a siege going. They're not even going to have time to hardly even attack the city. You don't even need to worry about some long three-year siege. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my sake and for my servant David's sake. For the sake of David and for the sake of God's own honor, the city of Jerusalem is going to be saved. The kingdom of Judah will be salvaged. Hezekiah will be saved. His nation will continue and live and continue to prosper. Now, let's go on to the deliverance. The deliverance of this city was mighty by any standard. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there are a lot of miracles in the Bible. And some of the miracles are deservedly grand and deserve a tremendous amount of attention. The crossing of the Red Sea, obviously the resurrection of the dead of Jesus, and many other great and wonderful stories. This one, if you imagine it in your mind's eye, this ranks right up there with some of the great miracles of Scripture. The Bible records the details in two places. A third place gives us a little information. But it tells us what happens. And if you use your imagination and think about it, it is utterly amazing. It is utterly unbelievable what happened. So let's read about that deliverance. It is tremendous. In verse 35 of chapter 19 in 2 Kings. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Now you think on that word, that, that number. 185,000 dead in one night. Now that probably is not as impressive as the death of the firstborn in Egypt. But it might be close. 185,000 dead in one night. Now that number might not mean a lot to you. But for those of you who know just a little bit about American history, imagine the great battle of Gettysburg, the largest battle in the Civil War. There were about 150,000 men on both armies combined at that great battle. Now this is more than all of the soldiers from both sides at the Battle of Gettysburg. And they died in one night. So it goes on to say, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed, went and returned, dwelt in Nineveh, and it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, smote him with the sword. His own sons killed him. Now that's the power of God. Now, in the 
prophet Isaiah chapter 37, it confirms all of this, and some of the language is precisely the same. So you can look at that on your own time. So we have a tremendous deliverance because of God's own honor was being impugned. God remembered David and Hezekiah had a heart that longed for God, that pursued after God, that clave, clave to God. And God remembered Hezekiah. Now, what can we learn from this great story? There's more of the life of Hezekiah. His life and his reign is not over. There are more interesting stories that we could spend going into his life. But what can we learn from what we've examined so far? This great story of deliverance. Well, first of all, I'd like to just throw out two qualities that Hezekiah had. Actually, three qualities, if I may. Three qualities that I see that Hezekiah had. Number one, it's sort of a question for you to think on. Do you care for those under your authority more than yourself? I believe Hezekiah did. I don't think Hezekiah did all the things for his honor of himself. Hezekiah cared for his people. He had a heart for his people. He had a burden for his people. Do you, if you're a leader, if you're a husband, do you have a heart for your wife? Do you have a burden for your wife? Are you more worried about your wife's welfare than your own welfare? And that takes us into a discussion of leadership. Now, there's two ways to lead. Well, there may be more than two, but let's just say there's, there's two obvious strategies in leadership. It's a little like cows. You can chase your cows, or you can lead your cows. Now, most of you that know what I do, I like to lead my cows, and I trick them with grain. And it works wonderfully. And I lead my cows, and they follow me anywhere. They love me, if I've got the bucket. Or you can chase your cows. Now, if you ever chased a cow, it can be pretty frustrating. <laughs> well, think of that now. There's, you've got these two styles of leadership. You can coerce and push the people you're leading. You can coerce them. You can browbeat them. You can punish them. You can say, do it, do it. I'm the boss. Do it. Come on, come on, come on. I'm in charge here. And they can say, yeah, I know you're in charge, but you're bothering me or whatever. You know, you're not going to get necessarily the greatest reaction through coercion. Or you can lead them. You can give them a reason to love you. You can give them a reason to admire you. You can give them a reason to follow you. So there's really two styles of leadership that's before you. Now, I've read a few books on leadership. I'm by no means any expert. But I would say this. The latter is superior to the former. Leadership by inspiration is much better than leadership by coercion. And it's not good enough just to say, somebody put me in charge, so you got to do what I say. Uh, that, that is not the best form of leadership. The best form of leadership is when they sense that you really love them a lot. And you care for them 
so much that you're going to watch out for their welfare, and, and, they, and they sense that. It's not good enough for you just to tell them that. You've got to, you've got to make them believe it. And if they, don't, if they don't believe it, it doesn't do any good. They, and they're only going to see that by your excellent example, by your sacrificial life, by your, uh, all the denial that you put in yourself. And they're going to say, I want to follow you. I admire you. I, I appreciate you. I, I, I see something in you that is, is of great value. Now that's the kind of leadership that I think Hezekiah was able to bring forth. I think that as, as, as people looked at this man, they were willing to follow him because he had that kind of, that kind of, 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 of leadership in which he led them and, in, and, and encouraged them by his sterling examples and by his excellent spirit. And when they saw that he longed for God and he thirsted for God, and they saw that that was a value in his life, they said, you know, maybe I'll think I'll give Jehovah another chance. Maybe, I, maybe I'll put away Moloch and give this another chance. So I believe that Hezekiah didn't browbeat his people. He led them. And I think there's a real important lesson for all of us that have any type of leadership that we need to strive for that. And that, that's, a ho- that's a tall order, believe me. I know it's a tall order. But I think it's something for us to reflect on. Secondly, are you more concerned with God's reputation than your own? Are you more concerned with God's reputation than your own? Some of the great men of Scripture, we see this. David certainly had that. David was far more concerned with God's reputation than his own, which is why his, his heart was, was so... God, God, God appreciated David so much, and why there's so many references to the, David as a positive king. Next... And I'd like you to take, with the time we've got left, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 44. Now, we haven't read much out of the book of Isaiah. Some of the story that we have read out of 2 Kings is also found in the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah was contemporary. They knew each other. I'd like to read from Isaiah 44. So please turn with me to Isaiah 44. This will be our final passage that we examine with the time we've got left. Let me read a little bit. Isaiah chapter number 44. And the question is, do you truly know God? And really, this is where I want you to to really think for a minute this morning. Do you truly know God? Do you, you, sitting in the pew right now, you, you're sitting in the pew. You're listening to me drone on. And you're saying, okay, he doesn't have much more time. Well, I do have a little time. And with this little time, I want you to answer the question to yourself, do I really know God? How how much, how well do I know God? Not does God know me, do I know Him? To what extent do I really know God? Well, let's look a little bit at this passage. Isaiah 44. Now remember, these are words that Isaiah the prophet gave at the time of Hezekiah the king. The story we've just been looking at. Verse 1. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee, that formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou Jeshurun whom I have chosen. Now those are wonderful words. 
Those are outstanding words that tell us that God has chosen Israel. God is not interested in other nations and other peoples. God is interested in you because you are Israel. He has a special love and affection for you. Well, that's great. But what about your affection for Him? Verse 3, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. Now during this dry summer, most of us have noticed that the last place to, to get dry and wither is along the ditches and the creeks, right? All right, well... Isaiah is trying to say, you're going to be watered like those ditches and creeks and streams. You're going to stay green and fresh. One shall say, I am the Lord's. Another shall call himself by the name Jacob. And another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel. But it, all, but it, but it hinges on one little phrase in verse 3 that I'd like to call your attention to. Now, let's go back to verse 3. Back to verse 3. Is everybody looking at verse 3? Here's an important key, in my humble opinion. God says, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. The question is, are you thirsty? Do you thirst for God? Or do you thirst for something else? Remember, I told you beginning of this study that our God's a jealous God. Are you thirsty for God? David in Psalm 42 described himself like a heart or a deer that's longing for a drink of water. He says, that's how I feel toward God. I'm like a thirsty deer who hasn't drank in a day or two. And I need to get to the creek. I'm desperate for water. David says, I'm desperate to connect to my God. I am thirsty for God. Are you thirsty for God? Are you thirsty for Him? He will pour out water for you. If you're thirsty. I believe Hezekiah thirsted for God. He claved to God. God rewarded Hezekiah because... Hezekiah pursued, he claved to God, he longed for God, he desired God. Everything else was secondary. And God rewarded him. So do you truly know God? I think Hezekiah had a thirst for God. Our God is a jealous God. Now, if we reflect just a little further on Hezekiah. Hezekiah had a fractured youth. He had an absolutely abysmal, appalling youth. That was no excuse. It doesn't matter what your youth was like. It doesn't matter if you were abused, neglected, forgotten, overlooked, beat up, treated unfairly, unjustly. It doesn't matter. What matters is when you become of mature age, that you are now accountable. And do you have a thirst for God? That's what matters. Hezekiah had plenty of excuses about his terrible youth. With his own elder brother, 
given over to sacrifice to Molech, and fearing his entire youth that he might be next, because his father might need to do it again. It doesn't matter. I'm sorry for your bad youth. That's, That's a pity. It's no excuse, though, for you not to get right with God and to put it all behind you and to let God's grace sweep it away. Stop thinking on it. Stop rehearsing it. Stop trying to unwind it. You can't. It's gone. Let it go. Long and thirst for God. And He'll water you. But you've got to be thirsty. You've got to want it. You've got to pursue Him. And at this time in your life, wherever you are, you have fears, you have anxieties. Everyone has anxieties and fears. They never go away. They don't ever go away. Even when you're 90 and in the nursing home. Well, Marie's not in the nursing home, praise God. But when you, even at the end of life, even if you're not afraid for yourself, you've got worries and anxieties for the people you love. It doesn't end. But that's no excuse either. Bad advice isn't an excuse. Sure, you're going to seek advice and counsel. Some of it might be poor. But you are the one that has to decide. You are the one that has to long for God. It doesn't matter what your friends or your parents or your... It doesn't matter what kind of advice you're getting. You've got to live in accountability with God. You've got to long for Him. You've got to pursue Him. You've got to seek Him. If you pursue and seek after God and you're looking for Him diligently day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, He will water you. But you won't get watered unless you're thirsty. That was David's great virtue. That's why God didn't judge David harshly for his many serious mistakes in the second portion of his life. God was extraordinarily grateful, sorry, gracious rather. He was extraordinarily gracious with David, even though David made some serious blunders. Because David's heart thirsted after God. So there's going to be moments that come in your life. There'll be pivotal times. Like Hezekiah, there will be pivotal moment or two or three. There are going to be a few really critical moments in your life. And you can't postpone those tests indefinitely. A test will come and God is going to discover, going to find out what you really long for, what you really pursue, what you really thirst for. Do you thirst for God? Do you serve Jesus Christ alone? Our triune God is a jealous God. I pray that you and I can follow the example of Hezekiah and long and thirst for God. And if we do, He'll water us. God bless you all.